Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 4th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. What is a hard border if it is not a border that is policed? Most people think that the British government is within a hair's breadth of re-establishing a hard border on the island of Ireland. Last night, the Chief Constable in Northern Ireland, Simon Byrne, spoke to the Prime Minister in a phone call that lasted 30 minutes. He said he does not have the wherewithal to police such a border and would need 300 new police officers if he was in a position to do this. This is despite a promise from Boris Johnson that there will be no stops or checks. The Right Honourable Gentleman is absolutely right to lay the emphasis that he does on the Good Friday Agreement and the, and the peace process. And I can tell you, I can tell you, Mr Speaker, that in all our conversations we are driven by the need to protect and indeed to fortify that agreement and that process. And I think that this uh, deal that we are setting out gives us the opportunity, gives communities in Northern Ireland the opportunity to build on that process. But I must stress to him that he is mistaken if he believes that it will involve that any of our proposals will necessitate any kind of checks at the border. That is absolutely, that is absolutely untrue. Uh, or, or, in, or indeed any, ki- any kind of hard border, because that is, uh, I must tell him, tell him respectfully, uh, tell him respectfully, that is untrue. Boris Johnson speaking in the House of Commons yesterday. Let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the border and uh, the future for a border or otherwise on this island as a result of Brexit, if that is to happen on the 31st of October with Brendan Smith, Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan. And a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. The Taoiseach said we may have to live with a no-deal Brexit. If he's right, does it automatically follow that there will be no border and if the chief constable is right and he's not in a position to police it, what are we talking about? Well, I think the, the Taoiseach is saying there is, is uh, he's, he's, um, he's informed in, view, in, say, in stating that, but I think Mr Johnston wants an election. He wants an election based on having had a no-deal exit from the, from the European Union. If you take, Mr Johnston was speaking at his Tory party conference on Wednesday afternoon, he was speaking about there would be no borders, there would be no this, that or the other. A few hours later, 
he sends a proposal to the President of the European Commission that actually introduces customs checks. So within a few hours, he's contradicting himself. And believe it or not, the heading of Mr Johnston's letter to Mr Juncker was titled A Fair and Reasonable Compromise UK Proposes mm. for a New Protocol in Ireland Northern Ireland. Now let us be clear and state the facts. What the British government is now putting forward, it's neither fair, nor it's reasonable, nor even a compromise. It's a considerable reneging on the commitments made by Britain and agreed with the European Union in 2017. And Mr Johnson was a part of that government that made that agreement with the European Union. Well, we've been hearing that he's proposing two borders for four years, but the reality seems to be something worse than that, that it'll be three or more borders, uh, because he's talking about a, a buffer zone, and that you wouldn't have checks, as he told the House of Commons yesterday, on the actual border, that there would be some miles back from the border, uh, and in between would be this buffer zone. So you'd have a, a border, let's say, uh, at Cavan, uh, and you might have a, another border, or customs check, or clearance house, or whatever it is in Armagh, as the case may be. So then you'd have that buffer zone, that no man's land in between. Uh, and it seems, from what the Chief Constable is saying, uh, the border on the northern side of uh, the border, <laughs> I'm confusing myself, uh, wouldn't be policed. Yeah, well, I think the Chief Constable realises mm. that if there's any infrastructure of a border nature on this island, then we're going backwards in a big way. We cannot return to, to the idea of having a border. But it's bonkers, this proposal by the British government, because we, we have all argued and, and um, outlined why we should not have a return to a border mm. on our island. Now Mr Johnson's proposals would have a border north and south mm. and east and west. Mm. And uh, effectively then, with this zone that he's talking about, you would have surveillance and border communities. None of that is acceptable to the people in any part of this island. But if the British can't police their side of the border, who's going to police the European side of the border? Because it's not just the Irish border, it's uh, the border between Europe and the United Kingdom. Yeah, well, the European Union would put the onus on Ireland to protect the, the integrity of the single market. But your Britain, if they, if they have a trade agreement mm. themselves, they would need to protect their own trade area as well. But sure, we can't do that, can we? We don't have the wherewithal to do that. If the police service of Northern Ireland doesn't have the wherewithal to do that and uh, the ability to draw uh, security forces from Scotland or elsewhere, uh, what chance do we have of doing it? I I mean... But the whole purpose of the argument is to ensure that we don't have borders on this island. That's why the backstop is that necessary insurance. Mm. The British government with the European Union agreed to protect North-South cooperation to guarantee avoiding a hard border yeah. and to protect the Good Friday Agreement well, and protect the all Ireland economy. Now, 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 now you're riding roughshod over unionism, uh, which is exactly the charge that Ar- Arlene Foster laid on Leo Vratker and Simon Coveney yesterday because of them making similar comments to what you've just said. No, absolutely not. I think Ms. Arlene Foster's comments were, 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 were not correct in stating. I believe that the the government and the Iraqis and all political parties and political opinion here in our state have been very responsible. We've all worked hard. But the UP don't think so. Done. Nigel Dodd said that what you said a moment ago was incendiary. What, 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 was, it, what, what was incendiary? Th- this idea that there has to be a backstop and that you can't give this veto to Stormont or the DUP no, in effect. No, that's not incendiary. That's, that's what was agreed between the British government 
and uh, and the European Union. And I agree with you, but, Ni- but Nigel Dodds. I agree with you, but Nigel Dodds doesn't. Yeah, well, Nigel Dodds. Yeah, well, I, I I believe that Nigel Dodds does not represent majority view on this island nor does he represent the majority view in Northern Ireland either. The other Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, the Ulster Unionist Party, they, they have stated that Mr Johnson's latest proposals would not work. The only political party in Northern Ireland supporting Mr Johnson's proposals at the present time are the Democratic Unionist Party. Mm. You take all the representative groups, Manufacturing Northern Ireland, Retail Northern Ireland, Retail Consorting, all of them have said that the proposals put forward by the British government this week are not workable mm. and that they will be actually worse than a no deal. So we're in a very difficult position. I think that the, the European Union must state very clearly, as they have done all along, that the spirit and the letter of the Good Friday Agreement must be protected in any exit by the British, by Britain, from the European Union. Mm. And that's what we want. It's in all of our interests. It's in British interests and Irish interests to ensure that there's an orderly withdrawal of Britain from the European Union, that there's a good trade agreement between Britain and the European Union for the benefit of all of us. Would you, would, would you agree that one of the... I'm sorry to cut across you. Would you agree that one of the mistakes the DUP is making is that it believes that this is a parochial conversation or maybe slightly broader in that it's a conversation between the community in Northern Ireland and its nearest neighbours. Uh, but... What they are actually talking about uh, is something that is of concern to a a much wider audience, if you like. They're talking about Emmanuel Macron's border. They're talking about Angela Merkel's border. Uh, And how might uh, some of these other European countries react to how one small political party in one small region might decide where their borders start and end? Yes, and if you take then, if if, if Stormont were to be given the power and in effect they were given DUP a veto in regard to the renewal of this arrangement if it was put in place in the first instance. You were talking, there are regional governments throughout the European Union in, in Belgium and in Catalonia and Spain. If, could those in regions start to look for special treatment then in regard to different single market policy and different customs well, policies? They, 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 might, they, they might look for it, they mightn't get it, but they might look for it because they go to work. Yeah, but that. But that's <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> Stormont hasn't been running for nearly uh, three years now. Oh, absolutely. And I think if if this proposal were to be to be progressed in relation to giving Stormont the right to reject or accept this proposal, then you are into a period of uncertainty all the time because such a proposal would be due for renewal on a four-year basis. Imagine what business would say to that. The uncertainty that would be thrown into the mix at all times in regard to business, whether they, what type of customs or single market zone they would be in or how they would go about their daily business. The, the reality of all of this is that these proposals are not workable. And when you listen to representatives of business and farming and other sectors in Northern Ireland, they have stated very, very clearly that they're non-starter, that these proposals are a non-starter. We're talking about not the creation of another border, mm. we're talking about the creation of two borders requiring renewal every four years talking about checks north and mm. south, talking about checks east and west, it's uh, just plainly not workable. It, well, it, it's nonsense, it, it would seem. Uh, but what are we talking about in terms of a timeline? Uh, we keep talking about the 31st of October. Uh, we'll hear later in the programme, I, I think, that if opposition MPs want to stop the British government from leaving the European Union without a deal, they must do so by Monday. What are your thoughts on that, Brendan Smith? Well, as you know, Hillary Benn 
um, put, he sponsored a legislation that went through the mm. House of Commons and the House of Lords where the, the British Prime Minister and the government would be required if they've not achieved a deal by the date of the, mm. of the Council of the Heads of State meeting on the 17th of October that if he hadn't got a deal by mm. that time then he would have to seek an extension. He could seek so, an extension and he could rescind that request. He could seek an extension. He could ag- get agreement from Victor Orban or somebody else uh, not to agree to the extension. There are apparently ways uh, around it. Uh, and if he was successful uh, in taking such a, a route, uh, then the MPs, the opposition MPs or the MPs who are opposing what he's trying to do would have to act again in order to stop him. Uh, do you believe that Monday is the cut-off point for that or... What's your thoughts on the timeline? Yeah, but wouldn't it be rather ironic when we've had the Brexiteers to, um, use in their jargon and in their, their narrative, take democracy back, and then you would have the British government flouting what their parliament had achieved by majority vote. It would be rather ironic if, if, the, if the British government then totally discard the view of their parliament. Mm. And I, I believe that the European Union will remain in solidarity, that no one country will go off doing one thing or the other. And I would sincerely hope that if a deal is not achieved, and a, and a deal not on the basis of what has been put forward, but a realistic deal achieved by Britain with the European Union, then I believe, I, I understand that at European level, there won't be an opposition to, to the British seeking an extension. I presume there will be granted an extension for another few months, but that creates further uncertainty. And I'm sure that business who have to plan months or years in mm. advance all of this uncertainty is costing them money. They have to, they're stockpiling, they're buying forward, setting forward. All of that creates additional burdens on business, and that would impact on business on this island as well. Okay. But what has been put forward by the British government this week, it's not workable. We'd be creating several borders between east and west, north and south, and we would be damaging in a huge way our all-island economies. And let us remember that the vast majority of businesses are small and medium. They don't have the, the resources to for this um, trusted trader relationship and all this type of, uh, of measures that are spoken about at different times. And, of course, the British, again, have spoken about technology that doesn't even yet okay. exist. All right, we leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil TD for Kevin Monaghan, Brendan Smith, who's chair of the Committee on Foreign Affairs and Trade. Michael Reed on LMFM. I don't know if you remember this, but a year ago, a farmer in South Meath reported the theft of 210 cattle tags from his jeep. And a number of weeks later, he reported that 210 animals were actually stolen. He noticed this when he was doing a tea. B test, and he told Gardy he believed that the animals were taken over uh, a number of weeks. This is uh, reminded to us in uh, the current edition of uh, the Irish Farmers Journal, which is reporting this week on how over one million euro worth of cattle has been stolen from Irish farms. And Barry Cassidy, news correspondent with the Farmers Journal, who has compiled this report, is on the line with us. Good morning, to you, Barry, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, the cattle stolen in Meath there feeds into the old overall number of 342 cattle stolen in County Meath between 2009 and this year, 130 cattle taken in Louth over the same period, and 375 cattle taken in County Monaghan. This must be devastating when people realise that their animals have been taken this way. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can talk about the figures and, and you can mention all those numbers there, but I suppose mm. it's until you actually meet one of these farmers who've been affected uh, by one of these tests, I suppose it really doesn't hit home to you then just how, mu- how big of an instance this is for an individual farm. Um, I mean, I spoke to one farmer who, who had his cattle taken and for a couple of days, he, he these cattle were in a field outside of, outside of his farm and for a number of days before they were taken, uh, the people who took them were coming and feeding the cattle uh, without his knowledge so that when they came you know, that night to take them, the cattle nearly walked onto the trailer for them and they could drive away with them. Mm. Um, I spoke to another farmer then, he, he was elderly and what he said was that he no longer has the confidence to put, put his animals back to the field that they were taken from. So I suppose it's not just maybe the financial impact here, it's the mental and emotional impact that it's having on farmers too. As well I mean, as the financial impact. Uh, I mean, you're putting the value of each uh, beast at about €500. Euro, uh, so when somebody takes 200 uh, uh, of your cattle, uh, the sums are pretty staggering. Yeah, and I mean, that €500, euro, you could even call that a conservative estimate, really. Uh, I suppose what we've seen, and, and from the cases we know, I mean, you know, in this week's Farmers Journal, we, we detail a number of those cases in the paper. Um, but, you know, it's not just one set of animals that they're taking. They're taking calves, they're taking mm. weanlings, they're taking animals that are for finishing, they're taking cows with calves at foot. So, I mean, if you're a farmer and, and you're you're based in the suckler industry, uh, your industry is based fully on, on your suckler cows. So, I mean, if that, if that cow is taken, it's not just a loss for that year. It's mm. a loss for every year after that. Yeah, and it's a really extensive uh, report that you have in uh, the journal this week. And I have to say, I really found it to be shocking reading, uh, not just because the cattle are being taken, uh, but nobody knows where they go, it seems. Uh, and also the fact that uh, few are recovered, if ever. Yeah, I mean, look, the figures are there and it's it's stark when you see them in front of them. I suppose the, the, the colloquial reports you always hear and, and the anecdotal evidence would be that those cattle are never found. But I mean... 4%, uh, 81 animals out of 2,222 that have been taken in the last decade. Um, so for farmers, I suppose, like based, one guy spoke to me about how he felt, you know, pretty helpless and alone because, you know, the, the animals he felt were just disappearing off the face of the earth and someone surely knows something, but, you know, no one seems to be able to pin, it, pin anything on anyone. Uh, and you have a map of the country which highlights the different areas uh, and it's very obvious looking at where most cattle are taken and it's along the border areas. And I take it that that isn't a, a coincidence and that if they are taken in the south, they probably are brought over the border into the north and vice versa. Well, that's, I mean, that's surely what, what a lot of people are believe that's happening. Um, you know, we see, you know, Northern Ireland has, has its share of problems too. Uh, I mean, it's not just a case of the cattle are moving one direction and, and not coming back the other way. I mean, Northern Ireland, over a five-year period, I mean, we didn't compile just a detailed number of cattle from Northern Ireland, but we have the figures there from the PSNI that there was 535 incidences of theft uh, in a five-year period. Uh, so, mm. I mean, if you were to extend that out to the 10-year period we have there for the South, you, you know, there's a, there's a large amount of animals moving from there as well. Mm. What do you do? How, how can you protect your animals from being stolen? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, everyone talks about prevention. Uh, but, I mean, the people that are taking these cattle, they aren't people that are chancing their arm. It's a, it's a highly organised operation. Uh, and that's why the recovery figures are so low. So, I mean, I spoke to one farmer who, uh, he, had, he had cameras in his yard uh, and they came in and broke those cameras before taking, taking the cattle. I mean, surely everyone would say that if you have CCTV, geez, you must be nearly secure enough. Mm. Um, I suppose there's the basic things you can do. I mean, having your, your yard locked at night, you know, having you know a good, a high quality padlock on it. But uh, again, if these people want to come in, 
they're going to come in and they can be very hard to keep out. Mm. I, I suppose it's like leaving a, a mobile phone on a, a windowsill. Uh, you just pick it up and take it away. Uh, there's absolutely nothing stopping you from taking uh, a cow out of a field. Yeah, I mean, like, as I said, I, and I made that, that, I told you that story earlier of the, you know, the, the people mm. who were feeding the cattle meal to make it easier for them. Mm. I mean, these guys could be watching for a number of days. They know their way in and around. Uh, it's it's definitely not a case of someone looking over the hedge and saying, geez, I might think about pulling these away, you know. They're, they're well organised. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. People can read more uh, and lots more for that matter in uh, the current edition of the Irish Farmers Journal. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Barry Cassidy, news correspondent with uh, the Farmers Journal. Now let's uh, go back uh, to Brexit. Uh, It's been a a very busy week uh, across uh, the week. It was a busy week in uh, the House of Commons yesterday. And we'll hear how some of it played out now between Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, and indeed uh, the leader of uh, the opposition, uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. Our starting point is that this House promised to respect the referendum before the vote. More people voted to leave than voted for any political party in our history, and this referendum must be respected. Both main parties promised at the 2017 election that they would respect the referendum and that there would be no second referendum. This House voted to trigger Article 50 and has voted repeatedly to leave. Yet it has also voted three times against the previous withdrawal agreement and for repeated delay. And so, as I've emphasised time and again, there can be no path to a deal except by reopening the withdrawal agreement and replacing the so-called backstop. But what we have before us is a rehashed version of previously rejected proposals that put the Good Friday Agreement at risk, that would trigger a race to the bottom on rights and protections for workers, consumers and our precious environment. Given the seriousness of this issue and the vagueness of the proposals so far, can the Prime Minister tell this House if and when he plans to publish the full legal text that he must submit to the EU? These proposals would lead to an even worse deal than that agreed by the former Prime Minister. The Prime Minister signed up to the backstop in Cabinet and he voted for the withdrawal agreement uh, as a backbencher. His letter to the President of the Commission yesterday claims both are now unacceptable. Perhaps he can tell us um, what has changed. Why did he support it then but oppose it now? The letter makes his intentions clear. It rejects any form... It rejects any form of customs union, something demanded by every business and industry body in Britain and every trade union. They want to ditch EU standards on workers' rights, environmental regulations and consumer standards and engage in a race to the bottom. Deal or no deal, deal or no deal, Mr Speaker, this government's agenda is clear. They want a Trump deal Brexit. A Trump deal Brexit that would crash our economy and rip away the standards that put a floor under people's rights at work, that protect our environment and protect our consumers. No Labour MP could support such a reckless deal that would be used as a springboard, used as a springboard to attack rights and standards in this country. The truth is that after three years, 
This government still hasn't found an answer to solving the issue of the Irish border and the Good Friday Agreement. Where once the government was committed to having no border in Ireland, they're now proposing two borders in Ireland. Ripping up the UK-EU joint report from December 2017. So can the Prime Minister confirm the Government has now abandoned their commitment to the people of Northern Ireland that they would ensure there is no physical infrastructure or related checks and controls on the island of Ireland? I'm sorry, I'm only quoting what the Government said. Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party earlier, the Prime Minister, leader of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson, both speaking in the House of Commons yesterday. We'll have more on Brexit later in the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. Official figures this week revealed uh, that uh, there are 111 people who are homeless in County Meath, up from 14 in the course of one month. The housing problems in the county have been well documented with skyrocketing rents combined with a shortage in social housing, leaving many families scared, stressed out and struggling from week to week. Add to this uh, the continuous house price hikes over recent years, which are pushing home ownership out of the reach of many and the situation is at crisis point. Marie Kearns has this special report. I'm currently 28 years of age. I live at home so I do with my two-year-old son. I've been trying to rent for the last two years since I had him. I can't find anywhere. There's no accommodation or either the prices are too high. A two-bedroom apartment in my area you're looking at nearly a thousand euros for it and yeah I work part-time. I just can't. I can't do that so I can't. So yeah it's tough. It's hard. The harsh reality of the housing and homeless crisis right here on our doorsteps. This young mother from Athboy in County Meath is one of almost 4,000 on the housing list in the county and fears that she will never have her own home. I'm just on the list now, so I mean, I've got friends that are waiting 10 years and they've still got nothing, so I don't really have much hope for that, I suppose. If it continues like this, I don't know. I could be living at home for a very long time. Don't have my own bedroom even, do you know, so... So you're sharing with your son? Yeah, I share with him, so I do, yeah. We sleep together. We have a pretty full house at the minute again. I have more family there, so I do, that they can't they can't rent anywhere either. It's dead money, so it is, so people don't want to be doing that anymore. I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones, so I am, that I have somewhere to go and somewhere to stay. Because if you didn't have that, would you be in emergency accommodation? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I think that would be how it would turn out. Yeah, I think that's what it would come to. There are now 111 homeless people in Meath, according to new Department of Housing figures for August released this week. That is a rise of 14 in a month and does not take into account rough sleepers or those who are couch surfing. For Louise Prince and her husband and four children, who were given a council home in Avon a week ago after 13 months in emergency accommodation, the nightmare is finally over. Absolute relief to finally be out of the situation. The biggest relief for me is the children, that they are now allowed to have friends over and that this is our own space and they don't have to worry anymore about where we're going next. Louise grew up in Old Castle but moved to England when she was 15 years of age. When the family moved back four years ago, they lived in various rental accommodation and had been living in Avon where the children go to school. Uh, The rents when I arrived for a three-slash-four-bedroom house was around seven or eight hundred euro a month. 
Um, and then we steadily saw it go up. 13 months ago, your worst fears were realised when you were given notice to quit your rental accommodation. Your husband works part time, yeah. but there was no way you could afford, first of all, to buy a house or to rent a house yourselves with the, the cost. No, absolutely not, because although the rents are going up, um, where you get help with the HAP. So if HAP says they'll give you, you know, help with the thousand and your rent is 2000 you have another 1000 to add to that out of your money. What happened? Our contract was cut short because the landlord needed it back for a family member, so it wasn't to do with us not paying rent or because we were bad tenants. And because of that, this time that we'd been in the house, we were given six weeks to leave, and in that time we couldn't find anywhere because when we were going for viewings... There were like 30 families going. There'd be cars parked up and down. So it was just like crazy going to try and get a place. It was a lottery. It was like 30 families were arriving. Where did you end up? We had to fight for ourselves for a whole week. My family got split up, basically, until the council could find us some emergency accommodation, which they did, and they moved us from Navan to Trim um, to a and b Were you living in a and b for 13 months? We were, and the problem with that, what we felt was we had to keep the children in school for stability, so they all go to school in Navan. Unfortunately, the bus service was, the first bus um, that we could get was 7.30 in the morning, and then it skipped till 10 past nine. So if we got the 10 past nine bus, all the kids would be late every day, which won't work. So we had to get the 7.30 bus, arrive in Navan at 10 to eight, and then sit in McDonald's in the mornings until the kids could get into school and that's what we had to do when we first got there at a cost of nearly 200 euro a week because I had to drop them and come back and then go back in the afternoon and then I had to pay for them so that was very very stressful. One of the conditions when you are in emergency accommodation is you're not allowed visitors, you're not allowed anybody to come over, no staying overnight, you can't leave so that that part was very difficult so for us as parents school where they could still see their friends and be familiar while all of this was going on was very important to us how did you feel during that 13 months Uh, my marriage nearly broke up my children were not understanding why they were being treated like that no matter how much i tried to explain to them why friends couldn't come over the other thing with the travel and the buses was By the time, you know, they're up at 6 in the morning to get the bus at 7.30, hanging about, they were so tired, like, it meant that they had no life whatsoever. So I have to say that I've been through a lot in my life, but it was the worst 13 months I've ever had in my entire life. My children kept saying was they hadn't done anything wrong, and it felt like they'd we'd done something wrong they just they couldn't wrap their head around um, what it was and that's why all the services that I then became aware of with food banks and Meath partnership that really helped us and linked us with so many different people if it wasn't for them I, I, I don't think I'd even be sitting here having a conversation with you so it's all the hidden people that are helping people like me in my situation, they're, they're, they're worth their weight in gold. We're all still recovering, and even though we've got this roof over our head and we don't have to worry now about where we're going next and now they can have friends over, it's taken a real toll. The housing crisis in Meath has sparked concern right across the community, with the homeless figures particularly striking a chord. Absolute disgrace. It's hard to believe in this day and age that that's what it's coming to. 
And it's not getting better, not in my opinion anyway. Have they got enough interest in it? I don't think so. Absolute disgrace. It's sad even to have to talk about it, never mind to actually be in that situation. I think it's absolutely disgraceful because if you go around any housing estate in Navan at the moment, there are houses boarded up, houses out the roads there. Uh, you know, why aren't these being used? I mean, it surely would cost an awful lot less to have these repaired and have people living in them than uh, having them there lying empty and people on the streets, sleeping on the streets. I think it's disgraceful. You come into Navan any night of the week. Come in here and I collect my son here from the nightclub at 2 o'clock in the morning and there are people, young people, sleeping in doorways with sleeping bags. Very upsetting when you think, like, I have, I have sons that age, you know, and they're there and, and you go around then visiting friends in housing estates around the place and boarded up houses, nobody in them. Surely that could help a lot. It's absolutely crazy. The rents, like how on God's earth can somebody afford to pay? Like rents being even more costly than having a mortgage, which is crazy. Like something has to be done. Definitely need more houses that are affordable. It's just, it's madness how anyone can even start out, you know, to even try and get a mortgage. I mean, even when I was doing it, it was hard enough. But God love anyone now trying to even, trying to get on that ladder now absolute crazy. Being able to buy their own home is out of reach of so many people. This 27-year-old explains the sacrifices she and her partner are making. I currently live in my home house with my parents and my sister and my little nephew and at the moment me and my partner are saving for a mortgage. It's just to go out and spend money on rent is just you're paying someone else's mortgage. I mean you're throwing your money down the drain. It's it's doggy dog out there, I think, at the moment. And I don't think the government seem to be wanting to do anything about it. I mean, everything that's happening with Brexit as well at the moment, it, it's going to affect the economy. You're going out, you're, you're working seven days a week, you're working six days a week, you're working five days a week. But for what? Like, you, everyone has a goal at the end of the day, what they want for their own lives. But at the moment, the way prices are going in the country, I mean, saving for a mortgage could take us the guts of five years. If you didn't have your family to allow you to stay there and they're very good to do that, how would you ever save? You wouldn't. You'd be paying someone else's mortgage for the rest of your life and that's just the harsh reality of it and the the harsh reality of that thousands of people in the country are facing. I mean, it's just, you feel like you're throwing your money down the drain and you're working whatever amount of hours a day, a week, like to pay off someone else's mortgage and at the end of it, you're what are you really going to have for yourself? Like nothing. And that's why so many young people are living at home for so long now. And that's exactly why so many young people are leaving the country at the moment as well. I mean, I think that's still a big issue for youngsters in Ireland as well. Ashley Lowe, who operates the Mead Food Bank, sees firsthand every day how desperate the situation is out there. It's actually getting a lot worse and we've seen a huge increase in the amount of families asking for help in emergency accommodation. Only yesterday we assembled a hamper for a lady who's in emergency accommodation with uh, four children. It's it's terrible. It's just, it's it's gotten so bad. And on a weekly basis, the majority of our clients would be people who are living in emergency accommodation, sorry, existing in emergency accommodation. The the support that we give families like that would be um, yesterday we, we done up a hamper for a baby and we gave anything from nappies, baby wipes, pseudocream, calpol, um, all baby bits, baby food, baby dinners, baby milk. They're all the things that we take in the food bank and they're all donated by the general public. So in Mead, in County Mead, and like that, we cover the whole county with people who, who are in need. We find a lot of families who are in mortgage distress, etc. 
asking for help with just school lunches, nothing else, just to help them with school lunches and in all different types of scenarios. It's some stressful times for a lot of families out there and that's where we kind of fill a void. Ashling Lowe there of the Meath Food Bank concluding that report, special report from Marie Kearns. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. What have people been saying to you on the phones, Marie? Well, Noel from RD phoned in, Michael, and he wants you to calm down, to cool down, not to be worrying about what the English are doing. He says he was he was in Drogheda yesterday and on dog during the week. And what we should be doing in Ireland is worrying about ourselves and what we are doing to our own country. He says that he was in Drogheda and he felt like it was a ghost town. It was so empty. He was in Dundalk and he observed the soup kitchen there. And he says that the government here should be ashamed of itself. And he used to be proud to be Irish, but what we are doing to our own people, he's disgusted. And listening to the show and all the politicians on it every morning Mm. is making his blood boil, Michael. Oh, right. Okay, well, that's good. (laughs) So thanks to Noel for that. Yep. Calm down, Noel. <laughs> Matthew in Drahada says... Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> Calm down, he says, and then he says his blood is boiling. This, listening to the show, uh, Matthew in Drahada says the loyalist DUP never supported the Good Friday Agreement and have been chipping away at it for years. And now if it is tampered with or reopened, we might as well call it the Maiwadi Agreement. The loyalist DUP also want a veto, stick to humility and downgrade the nationalists as they have done for years. The Johnson and Co. don't seem to realise it didn't work for years and won't work now. What does he mean, the my Wadi agreement? That is diluted, is it? Must be. Okay, very good. Right, okay. (laughs) Um, A text from Jack who says, Mm. Mike... Mike, so Lorenzo was a storm in a teacup. There was more wind out of the politicians over Brexit. Lest, let's hope Brexit goes the same way as Lorenzo, okay. says Jack. I've more on that later on, on the mm. storm, some comments in relation to it. But uh, Joe from, just sticking with Brexit, Joe from Kells phoned in and Joe says, all this Brexit bull, Michael. Mm. The deal was done three years ago on the backstop, was it not? And at least the chief police in Northern Ireland called it last Mm, night mm, mm. that he won't be able to police uh, these custom points or he won't be policing Mm. them. I don't think we could do it here in the Republic either. Would we have the resources? I don't think so. Mm. It's time everybody start talking real talk. Okay. All right, interesting stuff. And he says, Mm. let them flaming leave if they want to and they'll suffer the consequences. Well, be careful what you wish for, yeah. Yeah, okay, go on, time what? (laughs) Time for straight talking. No backing down on the Mm. backstop. Uh, Let it be implemented or let them sail off. Okay, well, Mr Johnson says they will leave. There's no if, buts or maybes. They will leave with or without a deal, as the case may be. And yes, a deal was agreed with the previous Prime Minister, Theresa May, but that was put to Parliament three times and was unacceptable to Parliament. So the Prime Minister has come forward with new, fresh proposals, which is this two borders uh, for four years proposal, as uh, they're calling it. The Taoiseach yesterday said that he has uh, two major obstacles with it. One is how the North and the South could have uh, separate customs Customs unions and somehow avoid tariffs, customs checks, and all of the things that go with that. And the other, uh, the Taoiseach said, the other problem that he has is uh, that the DUP would have a veto on this. I think the issue of uh, consent and democracy is important. 
Uh, and as I said before, um, any consent, consent mechanism, uh, any democracy mechanism uh, must reflect the reviews of the majority of people in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, and no one party, not my party, um, not Sinn Féin, not the DUP, should be in a position uh, to veto uh, what would be the will of the majority. Uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, our Ireland. So I think there is uh, certainly a difficulty, uh, difficulty around that aspect of it. The DUP's Geoffrey Donaldson uh, responded to those comments uh, that the Taoiseach made yesterday when he spoke to Radio Ulster this morning. And the European Union, um, that uh, Northern Ireland should remain in the customs union and be separated from its biggest market in Great Britain. And that simply is not acceptable. Well, well in terms... In terms that of what won't be agreed by ter- the UK side. In terms of some of what Leo Varadkar said, I mean, he he said that he couldn't still fully understand how the UK envisages Northern Ireland and the Republic operating under different customs regimes without the need for checkpoints. It's a pretty good question. Well, um, there will need to be checks carried out, of course, but um, the idea that in this day and age you have to have uh, a post in the middle of the route to check the movement of goods. We recognise there's a need to discuss this in more detail. That's exactly what I said. Can you imagine the impact on the cost of doing business in Northern Ireland and on our supply chains uh, if we had a customs barrier between Northern Ireland and Great Britain? DUP MP Geoffrey Donaldson speaking to Radio Ulster this morning. Now, it was also raised in the Dáil yesterday a number of times, uh, to say the least. Uh, one of uh, the contributors uh, to the debate, the debate was uh, Meath West TD and uh, the leader of the AIM2 party, Padder Tobin, who asked, well, look, if this can't happen, uh, is there the possibility of a border poll? And the opinion polls have shown that in the north of Ireland and in the south of Ireland, for the first time in history, the majority of people believe that the best solution to this is an all-Ireland solution. Uh, yet there is no government planning at all with regards to this. A new Ireland forum would give an opportunity for civil and political views in Ireland across the 32 counties uh, to work in partnership together to map out how Irish people can determine our future together uh, without the negative influence from Thank London. You, Will the Minister develop such a forum? The all-Ireland approach is one that is central to finding solutions. Uh, in the context of the challenges that Brexit throws up. But we also have to recognise our different perspectives on this island, particularly in Northern Ireland, and we also have to listen to and understand the concerns and fears of unionism as well as nationalism, Thank you, uh, which is what we are trying to do. Um, I don't believe that now is the time to set up a forum on Irish unity, because that's what it, it would be seen as. Uh, I think there is already enough tension and difficulty between communities. Uh, there's a lot of fear. And we need to provide certainty and calm. Um, that doesn't mean we don't think about these issues in the future, though. Conister Simon Coveney responding to Peter Tobin in the Dáil yesterday. So what if uh, the 31st of October comes and the British leave without a deal, that they crash out? Well, maybe MPs in Westminster can stop the government from going down that road. Uh, Let's hear what Nigel Farage had to say about this on LBC yesterday. If you're a Remainer, here's your fear. Your fear is that Boris goes on the 17th of October, gets one or more of the EU countries to veto extension, and then Boris then comes back to the House of Commons and says, right, it's very simple, boys and girls. It's the treaty, Mrs May's treaty with a couple of tweaks, or we leave with no deal. Now, I think if Boris did that, it would have 
catastrophic consequences for the Conservative Party in terms of division within it. But there would be a form of Brexit, not a very good one, but a form of Brexit. If you want to stop Brexit completely from happening, if you are a Romaniac, you don't want to take that chance. So, Parliament is going to be prorogued on Tuesday if they're going to put in place an alternative Prime Minister ahead of that summit, Monday is their deadline, and as yet, they can't agree on anything or anyone. Nigel Farage speaking to the Romaniacs and others, no doubt, on LBC yesterday. Uh, and some have suggested uh, that the British seem to think that they only have to uh, agree this with themselves. So let's talk to somebody or hear from somebody uh, who has nothing to do with any of uh, the European countries as such. This is an American author, Bonnie Greer, who appeared on BBC's Question Time last night. Oftentimes I hear people talking about Ireland as if this country owns Ireland. Ireland owes this country nothing. Uh, Ireland owes this country no concessions. It owes it no quarter. It owes it nothing. The third thing that that I would add, too, is that the Good Friday Agreement, in spite of its rather benign uh, name, the Good Friday Agreement is a truce. And it's a truce because the United States of America and the EU sat down with this country to make it happen. We have to be much more serious about this. And the third thing I want to say is that the United States is Irish. And if anybody thinks that they're going to get a deal through and have a relationship, a trade relationship with the United States, that shafts Ireland, you got another thing coming. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm from... I'm from Chicago, Uh, that's where I was born, and you know what we do on St. Patrick's Day? We dye the river green. People are very serious about Ireland and the United States. Don't mess with it, don't make it look bad. American author Bonnie Greer speaking on BBC's Question Time last night. Uh, a lot of different opinions uh, there, Marie. Uh, which of them did you like best, Bonnie Greer's? Oh, I liked that. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. I liked okay. that, all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like that new word. There's new words every day in Romaniacs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's definitely one. Uh, just staying with Brexit, Michael, because we've had a bit on, in on it. And interestingly, you were touching on it there, but mm. Margaret wants to know if that was Boris Johnson's final offer where does that leave us now? Will they allow a no deal to happen in the UK, even though MP- MPs voted against this? In other words, they mm. say it should have, you know, that there should be a deal. Good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Glad to see. Uh, Barry says, glad to see that the EU is not backing down. I think that Boris thought they would, Mm. but they have stood by Ireland on this so far. So that's a flavour of them, Michael, on Brexit. Uh, Just one thing on the Mm -hmm. cattle theft. Um, George just rang in and said, your guest is so right. Farmers are like everyone else nowadays, Michael. If somebody wants to target your house or your property or your land or your animals, they will do it. It's Mm. very hard to keep them out. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Thanks for that. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Remember, if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958.
Now, there are many emotions uh, that members of uh, the Defence Forces experience over the course of uh, their career. Unbridled joy at the end of courses, pride in the completion of missions and uh, the contribution made to the safety of people here and abroad. There's a, a sense of achievement and comradeship. But these feelings have turned to anger and frustration and the psychological contract between the Defence Forces and their members has been lost. This is according to the General Secretary of PD Fora, who has been speaking to the PD Fora annual conference in Carlow. And we're joined by Jared Guinan now. And a very good morning to you. And uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, and Thank you very much, Michael. You're, you're very welcome. Uh, and uh, that contract, uh, whilst it is legally in place, it's the psychological contract, uh, as you put it, uh, I suppose that feeling of trust that would have been between the members and uh, the Defence Forces that has been lost. Indeed, Michael. Um, over the past year, we've lost considerable numbers of uh, members of the Defence Forces to the private sector. And um, yeah, the uh, exodus from the Defence Forces hasn't uh, abated uh, any, and um, it's it's really frustrating to see. Um, I mean, PD4 has worked tirelessly to uh, try and improve a lot of our members. We've made you know some numerous submissions to the Public Service Pay Commission. Uh, we've been involved in various court actions, um, but still, we're not seeing the, the numbers arrest in, in in terms of people departing. I suppose people might say, "Well, did you not know what you were getting into?" Uh, but perhaps. Uh, the answer to that is that you got into something different, uh, far different, uh, because we've had a, a crash in between uh, the time that many of uh, the people you represent joined the forces. Um, yeah, Michael, I, I can say that, um, look, at some of the things that have happened have been um, unprecedented and unforeseeable. Um, and this was remarked upon by the Public Service Pay Commission in the recommendations of paragraph 3. Um, when the uh, Haddington Road Agreement was done in 2015, um, because we were a, a 24-7, 365 liability to the state, um, members of the Defence Forces were required to uh, reduce their allowances in, in lieu of an overall cut in core pay. And um, those cuts were significant. I mean, across all the allowances, members of the Defence Forces are heavily reliant on allowances. But um, and other members of the public mm-hmm. sector then were required to uh, give up uh, half an hour each day, you know, that um, extra uh, they contributed with time, whereas we were forced to contribute with money. And the Pay Commission recognised that actually, um, while the Defence Forces were required to give up money, they also ended up giving up time because of the vicious cycle of people leaving and uh, the ever-increasing burdens that was placed on the Defence Forces. And you argued uh, at conference that whilst all public servants took cuts, members of uh, the Defence Forces took cuts over and above uh, other workers uh, and that, uh, in effect, uh, which you alluded to a moment ago, uh, you've ended up doing work at times for nothing or next to nothing? Um, I can't say nothing, but I can mm. say that the the salaries are definitely repressed and that if you look at the um, if you look at the hourly rate, uh, it is um, continuing to decrease by virtue of the amount of hours. If you took it that your salary was a calculation of the average hours that you worked 
and divided by the amount of money that you actually receive for that. Mm. Well, if you your hours increase and your salary stays the same, it's relative that your um, your uh, hourly rate of pay goes down. Mm. Well, I don't mean that uh, you're not being paid for the time that you're working, but you're uh, carrying out duties uh, that you weren't intended to carry out. Yeah, sorry, yes, that, mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. true. I mean, well, I mean, there's also other factors. Like, I mean, we lost two million euros. Um, uh, to the income of members of defence forces by virtue of the stopping of cash escorts. And that was a significant sum of money to, to strip out of the system. And no cognizance appears to have been taken of that fact, you know, when mm. looking at the overall allowances and, and pay structure within the defence forces. Right. Uh, and uh, the uh, review uh, itself uh, was a, a problem for you and your members. Uh, you said uh, that there was no aspect of uh, the process uh, that was uh, dignified. Mm. Um, listen, there was leaks beforehand. There was uh, the weeks of delays. It was scheduled to be published uh, weeks in advance. It, it does nobody any justice when um, there are, you know, bouncing back and forth debates in the doll as to, you know, who saw what report when and who got to cut it down and all the rest of it. These are... Um, this is very important to our members. Um, pay and allowances is primarily is, is the primary concern of PD4. And to see this um, sort of been played out in the public sphere in such an undignified manner was uh, disappointing, to say the least. Mm. Uh, and uh, for political purposes, uh, you contend as well. Um, listen, I, I, I think everybody, the parties were, were looking for uh, political cover for... Uh, what was going to happen for it, an advantage mm. from it. I mean, we are just concerned about our members. Uh, we don't want to engage in politics whatsoever. It's just um, we want to have this matter resolved in a timely fashion. Okay, so there was some improvement, uh, nowhere near uh, enough, I, I know you'll argue, but there was some improvement. But there was also an unintended consequence that you highlighted in your speech to conference, uh, and that is how members of the Navy are, are now being paid less than members of the Army. In uh, What happened was PD4 took a number 18 cases to the High Court uh, recently enough for the application of the Working Time Directive. And what's after happening, Michael, in, in the intervening period is that we have secured uh, an additional day of compensatory rest for people who undertake a duty on a Saturday. Um, this is to comply with the uh, weekly rest periods uh, under the Working Time Directive. Members of the Naval Service don't get that. Mm. So effectively, they don't get the same time off um, as compared to their Army colleagues. Um, so that, that, that gives rise to, as I said before, if your salary is calculated on the basis of uh, the um, hours worked divided by the amount of wages that you get, mm. well then uh, members of the Naval Service are actually going to be relatively worse off than their Army colleagues. Are the reports that we hear true that uh, members of the Defence Forces can't buy uh, a house, uh, that uh, on occasion they can't uh, afford their rent, that they're sleeping in cars or supplementing their income with welfare? Um, yes. Um, you know, there are members on uh, working family payment, um, have pe- people slept in cars. They have. I've spoken to them. Um, I, I haven't spoken to, you know, any in, in the most recent past, but there most, most definitely was when we highlighted it. Um, people buying houses, look, at. we all know um, that the cost of, of housing has gone through the roof. And, um, I mean, salaries for members of the Defence Forces haven't moved that much 
so yes, all of those problems are, um, you know, being felt by members of, of the Defence Force. Uh, and you cannot, uh, as an organisation, negotiate on behalf of your members. In other words, PD4 is not a trade union. No, uh, we are a representative body, but this is why we are seeking affiliation to ICT, Michael, at the moment. Mm. Um, we believe that ICT, you know, if we were allowed to associate with ICT, it would give us the best opportunity to um, to negotiate for our pay uh, centrally during the pay talks. Um, what has happened over the past number of years is that we've gone into pay talks and we've been left sitting out in the hallway while the main players are inside in the room negotiating pay. Um so we want to change that. We want to at least have some ability to be able to influence Congress in terms of pay, uh, future pay negotiations. And what's the legal situation on that? Are members of uh, the Defence Forces prohibited from joining a, a trade union? Under Section 2.3 of the Defence Forces Act 1990, yes, um, we are prohibited from uh, associating with a trade union. Um, but what happened was in, in twenty. 2014, um, we drafted a complaint to the European Social Rights Committee. The government made various responses to that in 2015 and 2016, um, which outlined that there was potential security um, implications by virtue of allowing PD4 to associate with ICTU. But the European Social Rights Committee um, said no, that the um, exclusion of PD4 from ICTU was uh, not proportionate or necessary. Um, which are the central tenets of European law that, you know, um, things will have to be reasonable, proportionate and necessary in order to overcome the, the burden of exclusion. All right. Uh, there is a concern that this would somehow pose a risk to national security, though, if you were to become a trade union or to affiliate with a trade union. Um, like I said, Michael, uh, the, the European Social Rights Committee didn't find that fact. I mean, if you look across Europe, you would have countries like Sweden and Austria where, I mean, their soldiers are technically allowed to strike. doesn't happen, but they are technically allowed to it. Um, you would have other countries where, I mean, Denmark and, and Belgium and the Netherlands where their soldiers are allowed to, to engage directly in, in pay negotiations. Nobody first, uh, and those are members of NATO, mm. well, apart from Sweden and Austria are not, obviously, they're neutral countries, but the, the others are, are members of NATO. Nobody would suggest for a second that, you know, the representative status of those associations uh, compromises national security. I just don't. I I I don't think it's justified. Um, but listen, mm. we're willing to engage with um, the government and with senior military management in order to assuage any fears they have. We are prepared to go f- even further than um, you know we believe necessary in order to ensure that their fears are assuaged and, and that we can come to a reasonable solution which, um, you know, provides for uh, a vibrant defence forces and, and allows us to effectively negotiate on matters of pay. But if you take into account the lack of trust uh, that you spoke about uh, at the beginning, uh, how the psychological contract uh, between you and government, if you like, has been broken and the long list of complaints that you have and you talk about people sleeping in cars and so on and how tough uh, it is and how unacceptable it is, uh, well then there's a, a lot of problems to solve and if the government isn't in a position to solve those problems, to come up with the money specifically, uh, well then, as a trade union, uh, the option of striking would have to be open to you and you'd have to assume that that would be the case and if the Defence Forces went on strike, surely that would be a, a risk to national security. 
No, uh, the, the, sorry, Michael. The European Social Rights Committee actually held in their in their ruling that the right to strike was incompatible with military service. You can't, I mean, us as a representative body can't expect the, to bind the government in one sense mm. and then not be bound by the other part of, of, or the operative part of the ruling. No, the right to strike is not an option for members of the Defence Forces. We are bound by our oath of allegiance and loyalty and fidelity to the state. We are the ultimate guarantors of the sovereignty, so, sovereignty of the country. Um, no, we, we can't strike. Um, listen, uh, What's happening at the moment is, um, by virtue of the fact that we're not being dealt with fairly, people are taking the ultimate form of action, industrial action, and walking out the door and just not to return mm. and add a considerable loss to the Defence Forces and to government in terms of the corporate knowledge, the training, um, the experience that all of these people have. Um, mm-hmm. So, no, I can reassure you and your listeners mm-hmm. and government and military management we are not intent on striking. Okay. Well, I think most people hold members of uh, the Defence Forces in uh, very high esteem uh, and have been very disappointed over a long period of time to hear how morale has hit the floor uh, and uh, the hard times uh, that many of the members are going through. Thank you for talking to us. Uh, Michael, thank, thank you very for much. joining us here on the programme this morning. Jared Guinan, General Secretary of PD4. Michael Reed on LMFM. Make no mistake, the internet is a wonderful thing. It is at times a very dangerous thing as well. And because of how technology advances, sometimes the government is playing catch-up. It has adopted new offences recently, such as making it a criminal offence to take and distribute intimate images without the consent of another person online harassment and so-called upskirting. This week, the Joint Committee on Justice and Equality met to discuss online harassment and harmful communications with Angarda Shiakana, the ISPCC's Childline, UCD and Rape Crisis Network. And as part of all of this, it talked about new legislation to crack down on what they call revenge porn. Research conducted for the ISPCC in 2018 found that almost half of children aged 6 to 18 years were always online. The ISPCC's Childline service answers over 1,000 contacts every day from children. Many tell us about their experiences online. For example, a 16-year-old girl told Childline she'd sent images to a former boyfriend who then shared them with others without her permission. With these images now circulating widely, this girl told Childline she could not face going back to school and was contemplating suicide. Online safety is an integral part of the ISPCC's policy work. We believe, or we welcome Mr. Bruton's commitment to establishing an Office of Digital Safety Commissioner, an office we see as imperative for championing children's online safety. That's John Church, who's uh, the chief executive of uh, the ISPCC, who was addressing the Justice Committee on Wednesday. John is on the line with us now. And a very good morning, and thanks uh, for taking the time to speak to us on the programme today. That was a particularly shocking story that you told members of the committee about that young girl. But would that be a, a rare thing to happen, or is it commonplace? Uh, firstly, good morning to you and your listeners, and thank you for having me. Un- un- unfortunately, I suppose to answer your question directly, that, that, that is becoming more common. That's one example of what we see. Um, 
just from listening to what I what I addressed the Joint Oireachtas Committee on there, on uh, which you replayed. Yes, we do get up to about twelve hundred telephone calls a day. We have a new system, a new online chat system, which is becoming more and more popular because children under the age of eighteen are choosing to to um, communicate with each other online rather than use the telephone. So this is, this will become a bigger issue. And of those twelve hundred phone calls, we're seeing an increasing. Uh, number of children reaching out to us with those type of stories. We see growth in suicide ideation, self-harm, bullying. It's becoming an increasingly difficult environment and a, and, and a world, the so-called online world that mm. we talk about. You know, the children under 18 don't say, well, I'm going online now or I'm offline. You know, it's more older adults like like, yeah. like me that would say yeah. it, you yeah. know, because <laughs> I, I've come from the offline world with mm. children now it's just their environment. It's where they live. They don't contemplate how they communicate. Um, so it, it, it is a, a world which, as I also said in, to the Oireachtas Committee and the ISPCC would always say that the, the internet is a fantastic resource for educational purposes. And it has, you know, I use it all the time if I'm, if I, if I, you know, if I'm at a quiz or whatever, mm. but, mm. Uh, and it's a fantastic tool for, for, um, studying for the, for the exams and, and mm. school, but there is a dark side and unfortunately, you know, there are uh, activities and practices developing and more and more children are becoming um, exposed to these sorts of activities. And that's if they become exposed to it. It's not that they're looking for it or not necessarily that they're looking for it, but they find themselves in a situation because whilst it can be a great tool for all sorts of things, uh, the biggest library in the world, if you like, it's also a great tool for socialising. And some of these Correct. social yeah. network forums are fabulous and they're a great new method yeah. for people to communicate. But it's in that sense of security that you may end up discovering that it was a false sense of security and you can end up damaged. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, these are innocent children. We got calls from children as young as six all the way up to 18. Now, a six-year-old uh, behaves and has, and has a different view of the world mm. very differently to an 18-year-old for, for very obvious reasons. So, Yes, this is a this is a curious area. You know, I'm not going to get into the digital age of consent because we mm. were pushing for 13 years of age. But a, a 12 and 13 year old, uh, w- you know, operating within the internet very innocently um, would be going looking for something of interest and will encounter inappropriate age inappropriate material. And you know, unfortunately, maybe individuals who wish to communicate with them in so-called grooming, and we're seeing we're seeing a lot of that. And you mentioned in your opening address there that Angarda Shikona was was there, and we inter- we interact with Angarda Shikona with a very good relationship with them. And this is a this is a significant issue for them. They're understaffed to try and you know police or capture this sort of grooming that's going on. I mean, uh, in a recent conversation we had with them. They turned around and said, if only we could stop young, innocent teenagers sharing images of themselves, pictures of themselves with friends that unfortunately can get shared in areas that you don't want them to be shared very, very quickly. Because the Internet of Things is a very, very fast, quick moving environment. And unfortunately, our legislation is not moving fast enough to keep up with this. Other countries have acted a lot faster. The UK have. Australia has done that already and, and uh, we're calling for 
you know, a, a digital commissioner, an online safety commissioner. Um, in Australia, they call it an e-safety mm. commissioner um, who has real teeth and laws and regulation to act if some platforms do not take inappropriate material uh, and down. If you, if you take that story of uh, the young girl uh, that uh, you told the Eructus Committee uh, yeah. about who became suicidal as a result of images of her going on the internet, uh, it, it may be possible for legislation to make it illegal to distribute images without somebody's consent online like that uh, and it could even be a criminal offence but realistically what are you talking about if she sent it to a boyfriend uh, I mean are you making it a criminal offence not to be trustworthy Yeah and this is a very Mm. tricky area Mm. you know the ISPCC is absolutely not calling for children to be criminalised you know because children behave in this way very very innocently and that's the last thing we want I think there's, a, there's a, a point I made and a point we always make is that it, legislation and regulation is not the, the, the magic bullet and be all and end all. Education has a lot to do with this. And, and education inside the home, but particularly outside the home in our primary and, and post-primary secondary schools. So parents are looking for help here as well. Parents are looking for support. You know, we've done a lot of research on this. and Some, some parents play a very, very active role in firstly identifying what their child or children are accessing online and how long they're spending online. So it's not necessarily the length of time Mm. they spend online is an issue. It's actually what they're accessing and who they're talking to. Uh, I always bring it back to, if I I go back to a point I made earlier, the offline world. You know, if if you're a parent or mother or a father and your young child is sitting on the wall outside in the back of our front garden, and a stranger, an older stranger, generally a man, approaches that, that child. You, you'll want to take an interest in who that person is, what they're saying, and uh, what my child is, is, is getting themselves into. Why, why, why don't we behave the same way online? Mm. So this is where we try to encourage parents, and there, there is a, a parent hub on, on our ISPCC website that gives, that gives tips, and we encourage having a conversation very, very early in a child's life. Um, it's almost like the green cross code on the internet. We all remember crossing the road in a various ways. Mm. You know, why not Why not behave the same way and have the same education uh, with our children and our parents and, 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 and guardians and uh, our teachers as well? It's, 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 a, it's a real area that parents are crying out for. To and what extent? Well, you know. Yeah, I mean, to what extent? Uh, do, do you say to young children, uh, don't be taking photographs of yourself in a, a state of undress and sending them to somebody? That's a very good start. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. a good start. Um, and, and that can be done and is done in all innocence. Mm. Maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend says, send me a picture. Mm. And you, you don't want to upset him or her and you want to remain friends, so you do it. And that's something that children have done innocently all mm. the time. But and th- th- this is the generational uh, divide, is it not, John? Because most of the adults listening to us uh, this morning would never think of doing such a thing or asking somebody to do such a uh, thing. Uh, so they assume that their children wouldn't think of doing such a thing. Yeah, and I think there's an assumption there, all right, but it's getting back to very, very basic parenting, whether it's offline or online. Continue to have that conversation, knowing where your child is at all times and what sort of conversations, and, and have it as a conversation between a parent and child. Um, you know, that there, there are parental 
settings on 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 phones and apps and um, and games as well, because we mm. see the whole growth in, in in online gaming as well. And our and our recent research has shown a significant increase in the number of children accessing games online. So you know whatever about parental guidance and settings and safety mechanisms that you have on the Facebooks and Googles of this world, there's there is a growing introduction of of new apps and gaming apps that are that are online that children are accessing and uh, you know there are no safety measures of, for, for these apps so it's really really important from a very early stage that a parent or guardian interacts with the child um, you know teachers I mentioned earlier are under increasing pressure to, to deliver all sorts of messages and, and, and in many ways they play a huge role I mean they, they are looking after our children during the day for the vast majority of the day and uh, we need to be able to equip teachers with with uh, how to have that conversation and then how to deal with situations um, when they arise. Okay, well, important information, I think, uh, for many of uh, the people listening to us uh, this morning. Uh, Thanks for that, and uh, thanks for joining us for that matter, John. John Church, Chief Executive of the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the ISPCC. Michael Reed on LMFM. The former president, Mary McAleese, will be amongst uh, the speakers who will talk about uh, the role of women in the church at uh, meeting in DCU tomorrow, along with Sharon Tyke Mooney, who's an author, and Father Roy Donovan, who's part of uh, the Association of Catholic Priests Leadership Team. And we're joined by Father Roy Donovan. And uh, a very good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I know this is uh, taking place in DCU tomorrow at 2 o'clock if people are interested and uh, I'm sure many will be uh, but you've uh, called it Women and the Church Equality of Opportunity question mark. Uh, maybe you'd uh, explain the question mark to us uh, is it a rhetorical question? Uh, yes that for 1900 years now women have been excluded from all the decision-making leadership structures um, of the Catholic Church. In order to have a part in that, you have to be ordained a priest. And why, so, why, why is that? I mean, I think a lot of people would automatically assume it's because Jesus Christ was male, as were the disciples. Well, if that alone was true, then... Uh, would, would women even be allowed to go to the Eucharist, <laughs> you know, if you were to take that literally? But we know enough now to to know that Jesus ha- had a very inclusive uh, involvement of, of women and men, and that he opened up a whole new movement, maybe that survived about 50 years after his death, where women were in leadership roles, women were deaconesses and um, leaders in the church. And somehow or other, from about... Uh, uh, 50 years after the death of Jesus, women were wiped out of the church completely in, in, in the leadership uh, and, areas. And when, when you talk about leadership, what's your own belief, uh, Father? Do you believe uh, that women should be priests? Uh, should they be allowed to become bishops, cardinals, perhaps even a, a, a woman pope? Absolutely. On one's baptism, uh, Paul, St. Paul said that baptism makes everyone equal. And just from one's bat- baptism alone, one should be entitled to partake in the work of Christ in, in, in the church in all its structures. So that, 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 that alone, just by baptism, um, everybody should be entitled to 
uh, have a say in leadership and in participating in decision making. And Pope Francis is doing a lot. He's setting the groundwork at the moment uh, in terms of wanting people and priests and bishops and cardinals to walk together and to work out m- new solutions to modern needs in the church. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's still prohibited. It is, and Pope John the Second, there, Paul, uh, John Paul the Second, there, he had put out very strongly that the whole discussion of uh, women to the priesthood um, that that's uh, a definite no. But that that has he never consulted anybody about that. Uh, he. He that decision has not been received by people all over the world, mm. by most people all over the world. So you have to say, if they're not going to listen to the people of God uh, and, and dialogue with the people of God, the people of God are way ahead. Tell me more about who the people of God are, because uh, this isn't a, a view that is unique to a few rebel Catholic priests in Ireland, uh, if I can put it that way. Uh, it's a, a view that you've been hearing elsewhere. You were in Poland recently. I was. I was at the ICRN, International Catholic Reform um, Network, um, which is composed of uh, priests and people from all over the world who want reform of the church and there's a very strong belief that there's no future for the catholic church unless all is unless there's justice at the heart of the church and that all the structures would treat women and men equally at mm. all levels at all levels um, uh, and not just that levels. women should be uh, looked on equally uh, and uh, have full equal opportunity in the church but all people of all persuasions um, all people of all, yes, including mm-hmm. men, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, and including and, uh, the LGBT community. Yes, and we, we come out very strongly in the Polish church presently. Uh, some of the bishops are uh, unbelievably, um, they haven't uh, adapted themselves to the modern church teaching, which is that gay people are to be treated with great dignity. And some of the remarks of some of the bishops in recent times are very anti-gay. Uh, so we, we came out with a very strong statement uh, challenging them to comply with church teaching, mm. modern church teaching. Okay. okay. Church uh, teaching, that includes Francis, yeah. And that's a, a view uh, that would also uh, be held uh, by Mary McAleese, uh, the former president, uh, who will be with you in DCU tomorrow. Absolutely. And um, I would be in full agreement with her. Um, just an earlier point there that I wanted mm. maybe to clarify further. Sure. In, in making women priests, uh, uh, that, that a number of women have said that um, they would want to change the rearrange uh, the seating at the top table. They would want to change priesthood. They would want a new type of priesthood. They would want... Um, Priesthood has been a construct for by men only mm. um, over the last 1900 years. So, by just making women priests alone is not the answer. It requires that women are going to have input into policy making and into central decision making um, at all levels. That's very important. Okay, uh, and marriage, uh, I'm sure, feeds into this uh, discussion as well. 
mar- marriage. Yes, that priests could marry. Uh, absolutely, and mm-hmm. and that whether it be women or men, yes, mm-hmm. and um, that that the Amazon synod that's going on in Rome over the next coming week, and um, that's one of the areas for discussion there. That um, because there are huge shortages of priests, that they're wanting to introduce um, married priests okay. into the Amazon region. Okay, well, people can uh, discuss more with you tomorrow at 2 o'clock if uh, they wish to attend in DCU. We have to leave it there. Our time has run out, but thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Father Roy Donovan, member of uh, the leadership team with the Association of Catholic Priests, brings our programme to its conclusion for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.